Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 92. A year ago, we had Brett Cannon on the show to discuss his blog series about unraveling Python syntactic sugar. Brett has written 15 more entries in the series, and he returns to the show this week to continue our conversation. We dive into unraveling async and await statements and the relationship with Python's generators. While working through the series, he has uncovered some issues lying under the surface of CPython. We discuss a couple of these discoveries and how the core developers resolve them. Brett was recently re-elected to the Python Steering Council, and he talks about how the current direction of the council is shifting. We also discuss how Brett uses Twitter polls to gauge community sentiment and factors it into development decisions. This conversation covers so many topics that we split it into two episodes. Next week's episode will continue our discussion. This episode is brought to you by HoneyBadger. HoneyBadger offers error monitoring, uptime, and cron monitoring designed to tame your production and make you a better, more productive Python developer. All right, let's get started with part one. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Brett. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Congratulations are in order. Just a couple days ago the Python Steering Council election results, or is it just yesterday? Uh, yesterday for us when we were recording. Okay, yeah. And you're back on the Steering Council, so awesome. Yeah, I, I squeaked by. I seem to be slowly falling down the, ra- the the rankings of votes. I fell into the fifth slot, so it seems like I might not get back in next year, but at least this year I managed to squeak in and pull it off. <laughs> well, we'll have to see how we can influence the vote in the future. Um build a popularity campaign <laughs> <laughs> i think it's fine honestly i've i am now the longest serving member of the steering council i think turnover is a good thing so even if i did get voted off i wouldn't take it personally we've got some we've got new people on which are great too craig and peter and i mean pablo just totally killed it with the amount of his voice. I think only, literally only six people didn't vote for him because <laughs> uh, we use an open, I don't know the technical term for the voting system, but it's basically open voting. You can vote for as many people as you want and whoever gets the top five votes gets in. And okay. Pablo got 61 out of the 67 ballots cast. So wow, he's good. Yeah, he's set. <laughs> but yeah, it's actually interesting. I think it was kind of a slight referendum on the view of backwards compatibility versus forward progression and Honestly, three of the people who got in, both and plus the two who got who were new, Peter and Craig, kind of ran on a platform of let's slow things down a bit. Okay. And so I think that's kind of a signal to the steering council that people are very much wanting to possibly take a different tack than we used to in the history of Python of all right, we don't need to move so fast. We can think about things, maybe tweak the deprecation policy a bit or just hmm. talk about how we want to move things forward and make sure there's a really clear progression for anything we might want to do and et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's going to be interesting. Well, it has been, I mean, it's been a crazy year, like since I talked to you last January. Yeah. So top of the year and 
lot of change going on. The developer in residence and my conversation with Lucas about that, the idea of you know the backlog and and kind of going through all of the you know issues and mm-hmm. bugs at python.org and so there's a you know there's definitely a lot of area to kind of focus on if somebody does want to slow down a little bit i think yeah well it's a lot of this i th- there's a mix here right there's the there there's change from the perspective of the standard library and what people get directly exposed to but then there's also change at the c level hmm. And that plays into more of performance, right? Like a lot of this is coming up because people are realizing that the C API that we expose for extension modules is so broad and open that it actually makes optimizing C Python really hard, especially if you don't want to break extension modules. Mm-hmm. And so it's this constant battle of okay, if we took if we broke this or took this away. How hard would it be to work around it? And is it worth it knowing full well that there are plenty of probably extension modules out there that will never get updated, right? You always run that risk when you break something that someone will be get someone will be left behind. Right. Because that project's just been abandoned and isn't being used anymore. And so it's a constant discussion and balancing act of is this worth it? And unfortunately, it's completely subjective. We can never get good enough numbers. There's enough what some people call black code uh, behind closed doors that we'll never get exposed to and have any idea about to know really how much this would really influence or impact people. So we have to just do the best we can. And so there, there's, there's a couple bits to what would be classified as slowing things down or deprecations, whatever. And it's a constant conversation and we're always trying to balance it the best we can, but my suspicion is, is based on this election, at least the core devs are suggesting like, yeah, we might need to slow the pace down a little bit, which is okay. just totally fair. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, on another project front, mm-hmm. um, how's the Python in VS Code project going? That's your main gig, right? At Microsoft? Yeah. So the 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 pain, the thing that pays the bill so I can do open source in my spare time right. has me as the dev manager for the Python extension of VS Code, although I'm hoping, well, we are as a whole team, actually, hoping to make it more the Python experience because we're starting to look at actually taking our monolithic extension and kind of breaking it up a bit. Hmm. We actually want to kind of try to lean into making it easier for people to make their own extensions. Okay. So we're going to try to figure out a way, if we can, such that Python developers who want to have a VS Code extension can actually do that themselves, right? Like, because VS Code is an Electron app and it's written in TypeScript, traditionally extensions that are, ri- are written in TypeScript. But we use this technology that was developed for VS Code called the Language Server Protocol, or LSP. And it's basically a way to let VS Code launch a process to spin up a server that can do things for the editor. And this can be anything from diagnostics, like error messages, to formatting, to autocomplete, to uh, specifying the the areas that you fold your code at. Okay. Like, it's pretty rich. And the nice thing about it is it's editor agnostic, right? Like, you can use this with Emacs, you can use this with Vim, Sublime Text, obviously VS Code. There are a bunch of editors that you can actually have support for LSP via some mechanism. And so what we're going to be looking at is, can we make it so that there's basically boilerplate 
for people to create VS Code extensions as long as they implement a language server. Mm. And that way, the amount of TypeScript you got to know is hopefully zilch. You'll just take our template in whatever form that ends up taking, and you can basically just immediately just launch your Python language server that you run Python, knowing Python yourself, and you can just get up and going. And we're going to hopefully be tackling that this upcoming year. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, it's exciting, right? Like, I, I want to get it to the point where you come to VS Code because you like VS Code, not because we have some specific support. Like, I, I don't think us having tool support should be our differentiator. Our differentiator should be that VS Code editing experience overall is what you think is the best, and not because, oh, we happen to have Flake 8. Oh, under the hood that this is only available here. Exactly. And conversely, I never want you to go, oh, I don't want to use VS Code because you don't support Flakegate or something, right? Whatever tool you want to use, I want it to be so easy for you to bring that tool to VS Code that it's a no-brainer, either because you can do it yourself or because the tool creator, VS Code user or not, found it so easy to create an extension that they did so. Basically, I want to, I want to commoditize tool support as much as I can. And it benefits everyone too, right? As I said, LSP is used by is usable by all editors. So if we can somehow help the community do that, we can get better editor integration across the board for all editors and not just VS Code. And I think that's a great benefit to everybody. So that's the audacious goal of 2022. Wow, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Does that mean like tools like PyLance would be uh, available outside of VS Code then? Uh, PyLance is a tricky bit because it's closed source for ver- various IP reasons. Um, okay. So I wouldn't say anything that way. I mean, DebugPy, okay. uh, which is the debugger that we that is fully open source and lets us help support PTVSD, not PTVSD anymore. But DebugPy is our open source debugger that we help fund and run. That is completely open source. Anyone can use that. I think other editors actually do already use it. Okay. But this, this is more taking tools from the community and making them brought into VS Code. Yeah. So that's more of what we're tackling. That's great. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> the adding the extension .dev thing is, was kind of a surprise this summer mm-hmm. for like uh, being able to edit a GitHub repository that way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of really interesting stuff happening with VS Code. I'm hoping to get Savannah on to talk uh, about some of this again. Once things sort of settle down, maybe in the beginning of the year, we can get together and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I, this is kind of just a weird off-the-cuff question that I thought about. You do a lot of surveys on Twitter. <laughs> yes. How is that helpful? Like, how how do you feel like using that informs your decision? Do you feel like you have a wide enough, like, you know, group of people answering it? Like, does it change the way you think? So... I, so the surveys I do on Twitter are typically a way for me to double check my assumptions, right? Like okay. I've been coding in Python uh, and I just realized this the other day for 21 years and I've been a core dev for over 18. So I have a historical perspective on things that might not match up with modern day views. Sure. Right. So I may have picked up a habit from something that was more common way back in the Python 1.5.8 days than is in the Python 3.10 days. Okay. So when I'm at a crossroads, usually in thinking about some API design or something, it's like, okay, in my head, I do this, but I can totally see why this might make more sense to more people this way. Right. Twitter polls are cheap. And I happen to be lucky enough that I have enough followers that I can get over a hundred votes on a survey, typically on a poll. Okay. 
And so that's enough of a bit to go like, okay, is there some very clear leaning somewhere or the other in this? Is my assumption right? Or if I'm not making assumptions of what do people prefer? Is there an obvious one that if I can't, if I need a tiebreaker here, I can just ask the community via Twitter, like, all right, what do y'all think? Do you, like the latest one was naming protocols, right? Like while I was listening to your interview with Luciano, I was going like, you know, I've seen two different styles of naming protocols in the Python community. There's saying supports blank or there's blank like. Right. And both are in the standard library, right? Like if you look in the typing module, it's all like supports something. But for instance, the first protocol I helped create is in the OS module and it's path-like. And so it's like, well, I, I actually don't know what people prefer. And I'm looking at potentially adding a couple protocols to the import lib module because there's some ABCs, but the ABCs are too broad to be used as a protocol. And I've been thinking about doing this for a while. And after hearing the interview, I was just like, you know, what? I don't know what to name these things. What do people prefer? And so I threw up a poll. It's like, what do people prefer? Is, the, is it the supports blank format or the format like format? And it, it was a dead heat in the end, <laughs> uh, which just makes me whatever you want, Brett. <laughs> you go. <laughs> but sometimes it's really, really clear, right? Like I did another one where I'm thinking about like, an API in my mouse vendor project of like, okay, if you were to get a bunch of lists of files available for a project to install using the simple index API specifically, how often do people care about wanting just the source distribution? How often do people care about just the wheel? How about when they would prefer the wheel over or not, right? If you use pip, all of these are flags on the command line, right? There's dash dash prefer dash binary. There's dash dash no dash binary. There's only binary. There's, and then the default where it's just like, get the newest version and you'll just take whatever you can get, source distribution or wheel. Yeah. And I was like, you go find it for me. <laughs> yeah. And I was just curious, like, do people use all these flags? Like, how often do people use this? Like, do you, if I was designing an API that like could do like wheels and or Estes, do I need to optimize for the only Estes or only wheels or, finding the old the newest wheel but not necessarily the newest version like there's all these options like what do people actually use and i did the survey over 88 percent of the people said i don't care i don't know what the hell you're talking about option right? <laughs> right the bottom like i don't use any of these other fancy flags and it's just one of those things where like in the packaging side of things it's very easy to go like worrying about some of these esoteric needs that some people have where it's like, oh, my workflow at work is this way, so I need this. And you have to go like, okay, that's great, but do you represent the silent majority or do you represent the vocal minority? Right, right. And it's always tricky, right, where the people who come to you with the problems, you always have to ask yourself, and we have this problem on the Python extension all the time. It's like, okay, you're having this problem. Are you having this problem because your situation is very unique or are you having this problem because you're just the first to hit the buck? Yeah. And it's tricky if you don't hit volume on something, right? Like, we're lucky enough, the our usage numbers of the Python extension of VS Code are high enough that usually if it's a widespread bug, we'll find out about it pretty quick, and there'll be like five people who all say, I have the same problem. So we know, okay, this is an actual widespread issue. Versus the one person who says, this isn't working. It's like, okay, no one else is reporting anything, so chances are it's something about your setup or the way assumptions we made. Let's figure out what's going on here. And is this one of these things where 
doing these polls helps for me just somehow try to get at least some inkling of an idea. Am I making an assumption here? What does the silent majority actually think? And just understand, like in this case, seems like, you know what, people, Estes, Wheels, they don't care. They'll take whatever they can get. Just get, get me the thing that the newest thing of what I want. Right. Which made sense and what I assumed, but you just never know. And because if you look at that poll, the, all the responses were, I use these things on occasion. I need this. I need that. But it depends project to project. And, but the vast majority don't care. I, I just want the thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So if we can give everyone wheels and make everyone's lives better, awesome. People are totally happy with it. They don't care that it's not an SDS, a uh, source distribution, which is great for me because I am constantly pushing people. Always make sure you upload a wheel for all your projects on PyPI, please. Please, please, please always upload a wheel. It's better for everybody. So this ties into it. So that was, it was a good result for me, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of answered a lot of kind of mysterious stuff that's out there like because you have that background of being a core developer and and are way more uh, versed in the the language it, it makes me think of like you know there, there are certain companies that are out there that still act a, a certain way because <laughs> they went through something 20 years ago you know and it's like well okay you're not that company anymore, you know, like things have changed drastically and, and, you know, even people, right. You know, there's like people that, you know, still like collect every, you know, thing of crackers and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> condiments and things like that when they go out to a restaurant or a hotel or whatever. And you're like, okay, but you're not really that person anymore. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. sort of gathering that sort of stuff. And so like, it's weird to, to, to shift stuff. So I, I like that you do it. I think it's, it's good, and it's also kind of a nice visibility thing, too, for some of these issues. Yeah, well, exactly. It's I've been doing this long enough to know that I have preconceived notions, yeah, good or bad. And some of them might be outdated. And there's no reason or I should v- consider my views always better just because I happen to hold them, right? Sure. Like, I would like to think that my views are hopefully well-informed, but sometimes like, you know what, if it's a subjective question of like naming something, there is no historical context here other than just make sure it makes sense. So for, as I said, with, with like the protocol naming, it's like they both get the point across. So it's like just some pattern broken out in the community that I'm not aware of, or do people's brains are wired a certain way to know something more than something else, right? My Canadian brain might just think a certain way that the rest of the world just doesn't think, and that's fine. And it just helps me to get some inkling of kind of where people lean or where do people's preferences lie and just, yeah, as you say, yeah, it's just a quick and dirty way. I, I fully admit, I know they're not, they're not objective. They're not scientific. The, hundred people who do reply do not represent the millions of Python developers out there, but it's at least a guiding light that's better than nothing. And me just guessing sitting in my office here in Vancouver of what the hell does <laughs> it all mean? And what, am I right or wrong? Yeah. Let's face it. Your Python code is amazing, but it's still going to have errors. When errors do happen, it's nice to know Honey Badger has your back. HoneyBadger sends you alerts in real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io 
and start being your team's or your own DevOps hero today. That's honeybadger.io. So last time we talked in length uh, about and depth about the Unraveling Syntactic Sugar series, Mm -hmm. and you've written a bunch of posts since then. I didn't actually write down the number. A lot. But uh, you've made quite a bit of progress on it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's still not uh, done. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like, um, I don't think we talked deeply about the idea of like, well, I want to get this done by this date. But um, I think that the idea was like, I'm getting close. (laughs) And then, you know, you're still kind of hacking away at it, which is great. Yeah, well, so the hope was actually end of this year. I still don't know if it's going to happen. I mean, okay. if you read the post, you'll notice that it's all based on 3.8 semantics, unless I happen to know there's newer semantics, and now we're at 3.10. So that gives you an idea of how long I've been working on this series. Yeah. Um, because 3.8 was the newest version when I started. But I think I started in September. So I think I think I started September 2020, maybe? I don't know. I'm totally guessing. I could be wrong. It's pandemic time. Who can right. give anything straight anymore? It's a mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like I thought I was getting really close. And then unfortunately, I work with Eric Snow, a fellow core developer, and we were chatting and I was mentioning how I just did a post or something. Or he or he asked. I can't remember how the conversation came up. And he's like, Oh yeah. And he said, Are, is there a list of what you've done? I said, Yeah, if you if you go on my GitHub uh at and go to Brett Cannon slash D Sugar, so D-E-S-U-G-A-R. It's the repo where I keep anything that I re-implemented in pure Python, along with a readme that lists all the syntax that I've unraveled and any of the syntax that I haven't, along with a little asterisk or a tilde to represent, I know I can unravel this, or I might be able to unravel this. Okay, yeah. And Eric written, read the list and was like, oh, you know, you totally could do break and continue. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I could. And then we sat and talked it through. And then my latest blog post was actually on that and based on the conversation we had about the solution of using exceptions. And then when he started that, and then I just started like, well, okay, well, if I do that, you know, I could totally do elif and else off of the if statement. So I could actually, and then I started to think about like all these statements where I viewed them as a single unit. Hmm. I didn't think about the constituent parts of the statement that I could actually do away with, right? Like exceptions. I didn't think of exceptions as anything but a full unit of can I unravel exceptions like a try block. Okay. But I didn't think about, oh, you know what? I could actually unravel Elton finally and just keep try and accept. I just hadn't thought about it that way. So now I'm realizing, oh, I can write posts that like unravel parts of a statement, right? Once again, if is a perfect example. I can't undo if, but I could get away with not doing else or elif i can totally unravel those two you don't have to have those because those are just little flags to say did this other block hit or not like oh interesting yeah you know what i could totally do that so i've now unfortunately expanded the amount that i'm going to unravel because now i'm going to do like the if statement from the perspective of elif and else i'm like oh man just keep adding more and more work (laughs) for myself (laughs) and then this got into the whole like i wasn't going to do any of the tokenizing of like literals like and the parser handles like binary and hex representation of ints. That's not useful. That's not interesting. But then I was talking with Eric. He's like, well, are you going to do strings? Like, what do you mean? It's like, well, really at the end, it's just bytes. And all you're doing, you're just decoding the bytes. So as long as you have like byte literals, you can actually do that to get string literals. Like, 
oh man, Eric, what are you doing to me? I don't need more work. So <laughs> now I'm thinking I might actually do literals. And so it's just one of these projects that just is not ending because now I'm just, now I'm into the whole like, okay, if you view this from, view this project from a perspective of, okay, what can I desugar from the perspective of a single file as a unit, right? Like I'm not thinking of like cross file analysis, but like if I just took a Python file, what could I unravel into a lower level, just unravel into less and less Python syntax? And that's now where my brain's going. I'm a little scared of doing the class statement. I think it might be doable. It might be a lot of reading and a lot of diving into the C code. And I still don't know if I'll be successful. But otherwise, everything else, I think I have a good idea of what it's going to take. Unfortunately, I think unless they start combining, I think I might have like 10 posts still. So, Okay. It's starting to get close to single digits, but yeah. Right. It's one of these things where that scope just keeps creeping up a bit. And it's just, it's just yeah. It's fun. Don't get me wrong. But this is also why you might start seeing some of the posts have a little less detailed diving into the bytecode and stuff. It's because it's one of these, I'm trying to get it done now. It's right. And I want to get it done. But this is also why potentially the details are less about how the bytecode works and more about just the semantics of the statement. And just, I assume you know how break works. So I'm not going to explain explain what a break statement represents. I'm just going to link to what it is and just assume, you know, enough Python to understand that. And if somebody wanted to kind of get deeper with that, then the GitHub project would have more of the detail for them to kind of go over? No, actually, everything in that repo I put on the blog posts. It's just a way for me to have testing for any of the Python code I paste in. So if you go back to some of the posts, right, like I re-implement the iter built-in when I talk about for loops. Yeah. And so the repo has that code in a module with tests using PyTest to make sure that my implementation wasn't bad. Right. And that's how I was actually able to find some of the the problems in some of the other parts of CPython that I found were actually buggy. Right. This is how I discovered like the operator stuff, the operator stuff. And uh, most recently that the definition of iterator wasn't fully followed by CPython. And that kicked off a very big discussion that I had to work through. Was that during four or? Yeah. So the thing is, is if you look at the unraveling of four, basically the way the for loop works is the, the iterable you pass to the for loop gets passed into the iter built in that gets, that returns the iterator. And then the for loop just keeps calling dunder next on that object until stop iteration gets raised. The deal is, is if you look in the glossary of Python documentation and various other parts of the documentation, it specifically says that an iterator is something that defines dunder next and dunder iter, right? So an iterator is also an iterable. Mm. The deal is, is the for loop doesn't check that. And neither does the iter built in, right? So funny enough, there's no checks here to validate that any of these things actually are iterators. So the for loop docs were saying, oh, you call iter on this thing and you, you work on this iterator, but it actually doesn't require it to be an iterator. Like using Luciano's protocol talks, right? The protocol here was actually for loops need an object that defines under iter that will return an object that meets the protocol for dunder next, but that's it. 
right? And so it's one of these weird things of like, well, we're using the term iterator in the docs, but that's actually not what's required. It's really an object that implements Dunder next. Mm. And so I proposed, like, well, I asked on Python Dev, is like, what what do we want to do here? This is inaccurate, and this is the language specification, so we have to be a bit accurate here. Like, right? What what is an iterator? And is what for expects the for loop is that an iterator? And initially, I proposed like, yes, an iterator is just something that defines dunder next. It doesn't need to define dunder iter. And then when I said that, some people got uh, passionate. Is one way I'll put it about that view. Yeah, that's a good good word for you. (laughs) Uh, And it's like, okay. And the more I pushed for defining that, actually it helped because some people then started to rifle through Python and find examples of where that didn't hold, right? Where there were parts of the language that did require a full definition of an iterator, where Dunder Iter was also there. And so we went back and forth, and eventually I took it to the steering council. And I just said, okay, what do you all think? I'm not going to vote because I'm bringing it forward to the council as just a normal core developer, but what do you all think? What What's the definition of an iterator? And we all discussed it, and in the end, the other four all decided on uh, the answer being an iterator does define Dunder Iter and Dunder Next, and there's now a note in the glossary stating that for implement historical reasons, C Python as an implementation of Python does not uh, universally enforce that requirement. Mm. So we just basically admitted we're not we're imperfect human beings and kind of screwed up when we implemented iterators way back when. And <laughs> right, that's it. All right. So just to kind of clarify, like Dunder Next, you know, as far as the functionality inside of of you know a for loop, what have you, mm-hmm. um, makes sense to me. You know, it's gonna it needs to be able to do that to to literally iterate through things, go through them. Yep. The Dunder Iter special method in that specific case is doing something very different. And I think that might not be clear to everybody because it's not completely clear to me. So traditionally what Dunder Iter on an iterator does is return self. Oh, okay. Right. The idea being iterators can just are already an iter- If you already have an iterator, you can iterate on. So there's no reason to just find out, say typically that if you have an iterator, there's no reason to say, well, then how do I get back to an iterable to get another iterator of this? The idea is, well, if you already have an iterator, why can't you just return yourself and thus also be considered iterable, right? That it's just one of these okay. simplifications uh, such that you don't have to go like, okay, I was given this iterator, okay? I, but I want a new copy of it. Or how do I get back to an iterable? Or just, I want an iterator of this object that I was given. You can't work your way backwards. It's without Dunder Iter on an iterator, it's a one-way thing, right? Iterable to iterator, and then you're that's it. That's the end of the line. Okay. But when you define Dunder Iter on an iterator, it becomes a circular loop at that end. It's like, I don't have to worry about how the heck do I get back to this object or something that represents this. Okay. Now, obviously, for certain cases, it makes sense not to return self on Dunder Iter, right? Some objects, like, you never want to go through the same thing again. It should return a new copy. Should be. But... Yeah, exhausted, or it's going to be a separate thing. Exactly. Okay. Um, for whatever reason. But if, for instance, if you look in collections.abc, the ABC for iterator gives you Dunder Iter for free, and all it does is return self. So for a lot of people, this is already just automatically taken care of because 
the assumption is, is you've subclassed that ABC already. And so you've got that little helper uh, method for free. So don't sweat it. Okay. But yeah. So there's no rhyme or reason otherwise, other than it's just, if you don't do that, the iterator you were given, you can't just pass to iter and have iter just spit it back out at you. Right. That's, that's really what it comes down to. It's just like, Hey, I can take an iterable or an iterator. Oh, well, I'm going to want to, from a, just from a typing perspective, like I want an iterable. Well, you eventually want to end up with an iterator then if you have an iterable. So why can't I just take an iterator? Well, because it doesn't have to under iter. And that's, people are just going, well, that's weird. Can it just be itself? <laughs> it's already ready to go. I just don't have to convert it. So why can't we have that? Right. And then iter, you'll just automatically pass the iterable to iter, and then iter can just get the object back and just pass it right through. Yeah. And so that's the logic behind it. Okay. It's, I don't know if you think it's good that these conversations are being brought up. I don't know if it it adds any stress to to other things that you do Um, (laughs) in the sense that I I know that, you know, you're having help. (laughs) Somebody is providing extra work in in the case of Eric Snow, but um, (laughs) in the case of like these conversations being brought up as as you do that, um, I don't know. How do you feel about it? It depends. Um, if everyone's, to be honest, as long as everyone stays calm and cordial and it's a nice conversation, I don't, I don't mind. I mean, yeah, you know, this was going to happen eventually. It just happens to be I'm the one that triggered this one. If people get rude and pushy <laughs> about it, then I hate it, and it's just the okay. time suck and it makes me not happy. Um, but I, I mean, I like having conversations with people. I mean, hence why I'm here. Um, it just yeah. <laughs> I, I don't mind talking with people and explaining things. And I also realize that this is a this is one of those weird situations where I'm told I need to be more confident in who I am in the world. But it feels like a weird humble brag that I realize my position in the community is such that when I have these conversations and I'm able to disseminate this information, it's helpful to other people, right? I'm not blind to the fact that I have a decent-sized Twitter following and that I have a reasonably read blog and people just listen to what I say. And so me bringing something up and just having that kind of just out there can be helpful for people. So I'm happy to be that conduit when it happens that if there's a piece of information that I find just totally normal and I've just known for over a decade and everyone else is just like, Oh my God, that's the coolest thing ever. I had no idea. I'm happy to be that person to just let, Hey everyone, just in case you didn't know, there's this thing, right? Like people on my team have actually uh, started to do this, right? Whenever we were talking and something related to Python comes up and I mentioned something, they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. Uh, really? You didn't know that? Like, no, no, no. So my <laughs> my team has started to push me to tweet these random things sometimes, right? So if you follow me on Twitter, this is why sometimes you'll see me leave little comments like, from my team, <laughs> in case you didn't know, there's the at operator for doing uh, matrix multiplication in case you didn't know. And I did that. And once again, Twitter's like, Oh my God, I, I always forget that exists. Or I had no idea. No, no, no. Did that lead to some of the reverse chronology one uh, post that you did too, in some ways? Cause I, yeah. it's in that list. So, yeah, well the, that, so, so that, so the blog post you're referring to is basically I did a blog post where I wrote down a reverse chronological list of all the major features added to the language starting in Python 3.10 down to 3.1. I didn't do 3.0 or older because 3.0 is too long and everything before that is dead to me. And the reason I actually did that blog post 
was not because of that per se, although that's been a nice side effect, right? A lot of people have gone through that and go like, oh yeah, I didn't know about this or I forgot about this. So it was a good refresher. Okay. But the real reason I did that is being on the steering council and a core developer, I, I get exposed to people lamenting the fact that, oh, we're ruining the language for adding this thing or, oh, you've added too much or blah, blah, blah. Like everyone always, or, or people going like, there's a saying in Python, right? The Python fits your brain. And someone decided to be a bit snarky at me and say, well, I'm glad I at least still have the t-shirt, like as in it doesn't fit people's brains anymore. And like, okay, I get this a lot. Like this constant, like, oh, you've done too much. But the funny thing is, is these can also be the exact same people who will turn around and say, oh, but this other feature that you did add was amazing. And I wanted to make a point about how all of these features build on each other, whether because they led to a bit of inspiration that built to something else or to the fact that uh, there's unforeseen dependencies here. And like, there's two good examples here. One is the new error messages in Python 3.10. Yeah. And which there will be more of in 3.11, all thanks to our wonderful release manager, Pablo. That's all thanks to the new parser we added into Python in 3.9, I think. Yeah. Well, you know why we have that new parser? It's because we added the match statement. And we needed a new parser in order to make the match statement work. So all these people who are lamenting the fact that, oh, you added this match statement, why do I need this? A lot of those people are also the ones then going, oh my God, these error messages are amazing. They're so wonderful. Yeah. Well, you can't have both. If you want the new error messages, we had to do the match statement to get the inspiration to write the new parser for Pablo to then go, oh, you know what? Now that we have this new parser, this opens these new doors. These new doors lead to these better error messages. Right. So there's a key understanding here that you need to have of, I get that not everyone views every new feature as a benefit and to view it as cognitive overhead. But you also have to understand something that you view as critical potentially depends on something else, right? Right. And a lot of this also ties into stacking of things, right? Like async and await is a great example because that started out as generators way back in the day and eventually became a syntactic construct that lets this whole asynchronous programming model work. And it took multiple versions and years to get there, but you can't have async and await without generators. And I think a lot of people, once again, don't understand that kind of stacking of feature requirement. Yeah, I definitely wanted to talk to you about that, that we mentioned that offline before we started, that I had read the unraveling for async and await and you say that you know it's kind of developed out of this concept of of what generators can do and the idea of not only a gen- generated function being able to like present code and, and yield it as as needed but the, also the idea of being able to push a new value into it mm-hmm. and um and then you know that led to the other link to the your older post um about I think it's called how how the heck does async await work in that Python three five, yep, and which is from twenty sixteen, and goes much deeper into it. And it's funny because I had this whole conversation with Reuven uh, Lerner on the show, this episode thirty nine, and he's kind of taken it the other way, where he's like, the title of the episode was generators, coroutines, and learning Python through exercises. But yeah, so you know he's like. You know, how do you use generators, you know, as coroutines and this is kind of a whole idea. <laughs> yep. And I'm like, oh my God, like, why have I never put the two and two together about this idea? You know, <laughs> that and that's great that it kind of clarifies that idea that 
that's the object that's kind of doing a lot of that work underneath the hood, at least as you know, I'm reading it through first cup, first pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah, for those of you who don't know, async and wait really does heavily is it really is at the end generators with some extra little checks just to make sure objects are labeled as coroutines. Yeah. So the way this built out in the language was we did list comprehensions and like, okay, these are really cool and handy. Um, by the way, list comprehensions come from Haskell. And then I believe it was Tim Peters said, Oh, you know, we could have, we could have generators from the icon programming language um, came out of Arizona state. It's a fun little language, by the way, uh, the way it handles uh, looping is basically it keeps looping on something until there's an error and then it stops looping mm. and then it moves on. It's kind of funky, but yeah, uh, the concept of possible execution came from out of that for us at least. And when we did generators, people realized, Oh, you can do coroutines. And when people realized you could do to- coroutines, then there was the next step to add async and await and get syntactic support for it. But really at the end, the way all this works is you kind of have what I, I kind of call the async. You have this asynchronous sandwich of your code, right? Where usually you have a framework where at the bottom it prevents, it provides an event loop that understands all these things that you await on, right? Like reading a socket, a timer, whatever, right? Like we'll use a timer as a good example, right? It understands what it means to wait for a timer to, to, execute and be done right and then the that framework will also provide you that thing you can wait on and then your code kind of slips in in between so the way all this works really is when you say uh async def something under the hood you're basically just saying okay i'm leaving this as a coroutine which means i'm going to have some await statements which really are yields and technically they're really yield from and so what this does is when you're running your async code, right? Like when you use like asyncgo.gather or any of these other things from an async framework where you just pass in a bunch of coroutines to say like, go run. What's happening is the event loop is taking this collection of coroutines and it's just calling each of them one by one. And it's just like, okay, I want you to run until you have to wait on something. So in our case, waiting for some timer, right? Like, okay, run, 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 await, sleep, two seconds. Okay, you are then telling the event loop, hey, here's this object. I want you to call me again when this thing is finished. Okay, cool. And the reason it uh, under the hood awaits our yield froms is because you can't tell how stacked your coroutines are, right? Like you can have an async def in an async def in an async def, right? You can't control the call chain. This gets into this whole like, famous analogy with asynchronous programming where you're, you're pro- you have to color things differently. If you know that those series of blog posts, like all coroutines are yellow and normal f- functions are green and you can't uh, mix yellow and green functions. If you know the analogy, um, it's a famous blog post. So you can probably look it up uh, later. Okay. But the thing is, is await calls can call through await, through await, through await. So you need to make sure you yield through all of them to go from wherever you made that await sleep two-second call. And then just like a bunch of yields all the way down to the event loop that's going to get this object passed into it, where it goes like, oh, look, okay, you gave me an object, and it says sleep for two seconds. Okay, I'm going to set this this stack, call, this pause generator aside, along with this thing that I'm waiting to finish. And I'm going to go on to the next coroutine. And I'm going to let it do its thing. Okay, it's now done its thing, and it wants to sleep for one second. Okay, 
Now I have two things that are paused waiting for one second to pass and another thing that's waiting for two seconds to pass. Okay. I'm going to check to see if anyone's ready to go yet. Right. So I'm going to now look at these wait, these timers. Have any of these timers gone off? Yes or no? No. Okay. Uh, and then I'm going to move on and start the next coroutine. It's going to pass back another timer. All right. Have any of the timers gone off now? I'm at another stop point. Uh, yes. Oh, there's one second timer that I paused on earlier. It's gone off. Okay. You know what that means? I can then send back into the coroutine, just like with generators, the result of that call. Now, obviously with the timer, there's probably, you're not waiting for the return value, but this is why await is an expression, not a statement, right? Because it literally is using the send method on generators underneath the hood to send back the result of what you did, right? So if you were waiting on a socket, and doing a read on it, like await socket.read, whatever, thousand kilobytes or whatever. When that triggered and you were told, hey, this socket now has it has a thousand bytes ready to be read to send back up to the code that was waiting on it, you just use literally coroutine.send blank, send it in, and then the generator will then start executing again because now suddenly it has its thousand bytes that it was waiting on. Mm. And that's all this is, really. And this is why the funny thing with all this is asynchronous programming is still all single threaded and why it's easier to comprehend than threaded programming, but still be performant because all you have at the bottom is basically this big while loop that has this collection, usually a list, but it could be whatever of all of these generators that have all sent things down to the event loop going like, Hey, I'm waiting for this to be done. Let me know when it's done and give me back the result of the thing I'm waiting for. Right. And then the loop just goes like, okay, I'm going to run you. What are you waiting on? Okay, you're waiting on this. Is anyone ready to go yet that was waiting to do something? Yes or no? No? Okay, well, I'll call the next one. And you just keep just going like, run a thing, find out what it's waiting for. Is anyone waiting on anything that's done? Is it's done? Okay, send it back in and let the generator continue on. If no one is, start running something else. And that way you're just constantly optimizing. Like, do I need to be waiting for anything? Nope. Okay, call the next person who's ready to get going. And then you're just constantly just constantly asking, right? Who's ready to go? Who's ready to go? Who's ready to go? Right? Like right. that way you're not just sitting there waiting as you normally would. Like, okay, you want to read from a socket. All right. You ready? All right. <laughs> Single thread. Yeah. I'm sitting here just twiddling my thumbs until you finally get your response back versus with async, you goes like, I can do this for five, 10, 100 things. Right. And I can be waiting on all of them. I don't care. I've got a hundred people going and running stuff. And whoever's ready to go, then you get to go. There's just, it's like trying to go out the door right at home. Yeah. Like if you're in a family and you've got three, like if you've got your spouse and your two kids and they're trying to get out the door, it's like, okay, who's ready to go? Who's ready to go? If you go like, okay, spouse, are you ready to go? No. Okay, go get ready. Wait, wait. Okay, come down. Are you ready? Okay. Now, kid number right. one, are you ready? No. <laughs> okay, well, now you go get ready. Like, versus async, where with generators, you can just like, all right, spouse, are you ready to go? No. Okay. You go off and do your thing. I'll wait here for you. Kid, are you ready to go? No. Okay, you go off and do your thing. And then you just wait on all of them and just ask everyone individually. And when they finally go, you ready to go? Okay. Now, here are the keys. So you're ready to go. You've got your shoes on. Okay, ready, ready, ready. Now we can just all go out, right? That's the parallelism there, right? It's just, yeah. I get to ignore what you're doing as a generator because you're paused while I wait to just check on what the heck's going on that you told me you're waiting on. Yeah. And that's it. it that's all it is in the end. And it's it seems fancy and complicated because we have the syntax for it. But in the end, it really is just generators, right? It was the concept of 
creating generators, creating a way to send things back into generators, right? Because originally you can do those generators. They were just kind of paused. Making those expressions, right? Not just a statement. And then after that was coming up with yield from, because you never knew how far deep into the stack you'd have to go. So you have to make sure that one of them's not going to hold up and you might have to go back and forth a little bit. And then after that, it was just like, okay, we have this whole thing of to be able to build a coroutine. Why don't we just add some syntax for it to make it a bit nicer and make sure you don't accidentally screw up and pass something in and that you want to wait on that can never be waited on because it's not a coroutine, right? And that's it. That 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 is all async and await is. Generators with some nice syntax and extra safety checks to make sure you don't screw up. Yeah, you can really kind of try to make it into this extra mysterious thing, mm-hmm. you know, but but it's nice to to see the machinery underneath it, you know? Yeah, the, and the progression of it, right? Like yeah, it was, yeah, that's it, cool. Yeah. There's a reason it, it didn't happen overnight. It, it took us years and years to get there. It, it took, and it was a stack of inspiration, right? Just like protocols, right? Like, and, and once again, the interview with Luciano, like he, he lamented like, ah, oh, protocols, duct typing, perfect. Well, the reason it took a while is because we had to con- come up with the concept of abstract base classes. Yeah. And that is, that's not structural typing slash duct typing. That is what's called nominal typing or inheritance-based typing. And, but that got us a mechanism of kind of pushing people towards structuring things. And then when we started to have that, then we started to go like, okay, well, now you can have this concept of typing where you can say like, hey, I want this thing or that thing. And then this gets you then to start having type checkers. And then which you can run outside of the code. Right. Oh, well, now that we have type checkers that run outside the code, now we can have the concept of something that is going to check things that you would never check during runtime, right? Like structural typing, because we don't have a compiler like code does. And so now that led to the point where structural typing became possible because now we have the tooling in place such that you can actually do something that you wouldn't care about normally, right? You're just declaring with a, with a protocol, hey, I want this kind of thing, but I'm just going to run my code thus I always have and just assume it's got the method I need and not worry about it. It's not like you're constantly doing has adder checks, right? Like, oh, does this thing have my spam method? It's like, no, I'm going to tech, I'm going to statically declare that this must be spam like. But in my actual code, I'm never going to check that. I'm just going to call the spam method. That without a tool to actually verify that, you don't, it, protocols don't buy you anything. It's just documentation. But once we got the static type checkers in place, then you can introduce that concept. And now suddenly structural typing from an actual implementation, like, checking point of view was actually possible well beforehand it was just how does python do things well we do it duct typing but we didn't enforce it in any way it was just a attribute error or something we just try to call the spam method and it just nope don't have it now we actually can have the tooling but that went back to having nominal slash inheritance based typing which came from abcs etc etc once again it's this whole stack of just how things end up with where they are (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's so funny how all this is like interconnected, all these articles and all these concepts and even the, you know, the history of it. Yeah, it's really kind of cool. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It covers a topic we've touched on in this episode. It's about concurrency in Python. Concurrency is the act of having your computer do multiple things at the same time. And with Python, 
there are several paths you can take. The course is titled Speed Up Python with Concurrency, and it's based on an article by previous guest Jim Anderson. And in the course, another previous guest, Christopher Trudeau, takes you through how I.O.-bound programs are affected by latency, what are concurrent programming patterns, and where you might use them. What are the differences between Python's concurrency libraries? And how to write code that uses threading, async I.O., and multiprocessing libraries. If you've heard lots of talk about async I.O., but are curious how it compares to other concurrency methods, or maybe you're wondering generally what concurrency is and how it might speed up your programs, this is the course for you. The course is broken into easily consumable sections, you get additional resources plus code examples for the techniques shown. And all real Python courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. I have this weird mental thing that's happening with the use of spam as like a function name <laughs> or the spam like. Thing. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know why. I I have been a big proponent of of not using foo and, and bar. Um, yeah, partly because of confusion, but I think I don't know why. But when I saw your post, uh, that was like something that threw me. Where like <laughs> I didn't think of spam as the placeholder, and I think even Luciana's own response kind of was in that way too, because he he suggested, well, "Why don't you call it spammer?" Mm-hmm. And I think he didn't get the idea that it's like blank, like, or blank supports blank kind of thing. And, and I don't know why that is like, why is my brain doing this? Because again, I'm the guy who's like, if I can make a list of things, I'm not going to say, you know, a equals, you know, brackets, uh, spam, you know, comma, mm-hmm. uh, bacon, comma, whatever, you know, that's kind of my way of doing it as opposed to food, comma, bar, kind of whatever. Yep. Um, but when it becomes a function thing or like some other kind of areas of the code, like my brain is like, like locking up on the idea of the, this notion of spam being email or other kinds of things, <laughs> you know, this weird kind of connection to it, which is just weird anyway. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> the reason I use spam is for the same reason you and some other trainers I follow online have told me it's like foo and bar if it gets overused students start to think they're real things yeah right so i purposely don't use foo and bar but being a monty python fan and yeah yeah, yeah. all that i use spam and bacon and all that stuff so it's just what i naturally reach to when i need just a fake name now i could just say meth or method but then that also runs into the problem of like do you think i'm talking about the concept of method or the fake method method yeah, that's why I was like, well, put quotations around. And then it's just yeah. weird because then then you get into a whole other thing of like, well, does he mean that's a string then? And you're like, ah. Yeah, communicating <laughs> I just mean placeholder. Hard. Yeah, yeah, it's just hard. It's really hard to figure out a good way to communicate these concepts, especially verbally or in a cramped space yeah. or just period in a way that causes people to understand that this is an ephemeral name that doesn't have any special meaning or purpose that has a representation for something without using that name with that representation so that you don't get mixed up when you're trying to follow, right? Like if you're in a car listening to this at some point or somewhere and going like, well, he just said method, but he's talking about the concept or the thing. It's like, oh God, I just, I know I wouldn't be able to keep it straight. So <laughs> hence why I go with spam. Right. But I do totally get the idea is like, if you don't 
think about it, because a lot of us do think in terms of food bars, the holder placeholders, right? That makes total sense. And you don't have to put the mental effort in. But once again, the problem is, is beginners hear the terms foo and bar so much. They, I, I have been told by multiple people, multiple times that beginners start to think foo and bar are real things and they have special significance. I'm going to look for that in the documentation to do something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and so you can't use that either. Yeah. So unless people start at the, the first, first day of programming class, they're like, okay, the first concepts you're going to learn today, uh, very first concepts in programming you're going to learn are foo and bar. They mean nothing. They're fake names. They're placeholders. Never think they mean anything anywhere. Right. They're just made up. Now we can get to the real stuff, right? No one does that. So it's, it's a weird yeah. thing that I don't have a good answer for, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, it's like, well, do you start using other things in, in, in its place? And it's like, okay, blank or, you know, but that could mean something else. Here. It's like, oh, God. Yeah. I think some <laughs> people like use fruits and vegetables. Right. But that gets messy, too, because like whose terms? Like, am I going to call it eggplant or aubergine, right? Like, <laughs> right. Is it like does it, who knows? Does everyone know there's a dragon fruit? Where in the world are you? What What are your fruits and vegetables? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now we have to culturally normalize the labels for fruits and vegetables. And it's just like, we're just asking for trouble. So it's just yeah. like, maybe the Greek alphabet? I don't know. But now COVID's right. throw that kind of, right. like, exactly. are you talking about COVID or are you talking about the Delta cup? function right. yeah like, oh no so yeah there's no good answer to any of this unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that wraps up part one we'll be continuing the conversation next week with part two and don't forget honey badger 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 mushroom mushroom badger 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 a snake oh it's a snake Go to honeybadger.io to get error monitoring on your site and get that song out of your head. I want to thank Brett Cannon for coming on the show again. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.